Welcome to the Common Good Podcast, a conversation about the significance of place, eliminating economic isolation, and the structure of belonging. My name is Rabbi Miriam Terlenchamp, and I'm your host. The previous series explored Peter Block's six conversations. For this series of episodes, we are speaking with practitioners who are using these conversations in the world. Today, we speak with Dr. Gary Montefico. I'm Dr. Gary Mangifico, and I am the academic director and a professor in Pepperdine Grazia Dio Business School, Masters of Science and Organizational Development program. We begin with Gary giving us a biographical sketch of Peter and how it influenced the development of the six conversations. So I came to know Peter's work decades ago. Um, Peter was influenced by a number of people who have influenced me, which is why I was asked to write this biography. It's a, it's a brief one. It's a chapter, but it's in a book of uh, kind of renowned change thinkers, and that's sort of the, the umbrella term. And just the title of it gives you a certain view of how I see Peter, and the title is just Peter's name, Peter Block, colon, A Prophetic Voice for Freedom. Peter is probably what I'd call the great synthesizer. He can take enormous amounts of philosophy, thinking, faith-based ideals of different domains and so forth, and weave them into a process that looks for some common denominators. And of course, the common denominator amongst all of Peter's work is a combination of being a good citizen in the service of the common good and the collective. And part of what he believes gets you there is this idea that was heavily influenced by the likes of John McKnight and Peter Kestebaum and so forth, that personal agency and owning your freedom is your pathway to emancipation. And the greater your liberation from sort of conventional confines or thinking allows you to pursue things that are a greater passion and that the natural state for people is in the service of the greater good. And, you know, this is work that you can look back in time at from the likes of Viktor Frankl to even more contemporary work by some researchers out of Harvard who study happiness that humanity is at its best when it's in the service of others. And that we tend to find more joy when that's the case. We tend to find more contentment, more passion. That's been documented in research and in philosophy for probably almost 100 years now. So part of what I've seen Peter do, taking learning from some of his mentors, Peter Senge and others, is to integrate these influences into How do you have power in your life and in having power in your own life or freedom in your own life? How do you then be or act as a good citizen? And citizenship means you care about the common or the collective good. You care about others. And so how do you bring that activity into action and make something happen? His own influences, whether it was his personal life or the work that happened when he was like studying at Yale with Chris Argus and so forth, constantly kept taking him back to this notion of his own personal freedom, right? And it's not something one does once, right? It's something someone does on an ongoing basis. But part of your personal 
Freedom comes in declaring your intention. And you'll see this theme of declaring your intention throughout all of Peter's work, all the books he's written. There's always this sort of central theme of what's your intention and then how are you living into it? And part of the way he explores this notion of how are you living into it is to confront you with your own narrative that might serve as a boundary. My own philosophy is that the boundaries of our lives are created by our fears. You know, our fears create the boundaries of our lives because we don't go past a certain point in different areas if we have a fear relative to those areas. We stay within that zone, if you will. And I think what Peter's conversations do is not just ask you about how can you be in the service of others, but it asks how can you confront the boundaries of your own fears that would enhance your your sense of personal freedom, personal agency, and be able to, to have an impact. This was part of the messaging that came from folks like Marvin Weisborn, again, Chris Argyus, and other people early in his life. He worked with James Bugenthal, Lee Bradford, you know, who did early work in the 60s and 70s from the National Training Laboratory. His early work at Exxon in the research and engineering department, he trained as an engineer. Not exactly the kind of basic training one would expect to find when you think of Peter's sort of social activism. But I think it was finding his own point, interpersonal peacemaking with himself, with others, that led him to start exploring that work he did early on at Bethel and NTL and so forth. That work was pretty much marked by confrontations, but it would be kind of caring confrontations. So when you look at a book like Building Community, it can be both experienced firsthand as a personal confrontation, a personal experience. And that's often the sort of emotional and kind of affective intellectual high people get from it, you know, because they're questions that ask about you, but they ask about you in the context of your life, right? They're not just esoteric questions. And so you are in a way at an intrapersonal level, confronting yourself. And then the later conversations over the course of the six conversations, you begin to bring, again, caring confrontations in relationships. What has kept you from acting with the greater good in mind towards the greater intention you might have about a better society, a better community, a better solution to poverty or people without homes or children without food or inequitable neighborhoods. It calls you into that interpersonal dilemma, but it doesn't tell you what the dilemma is. And it calls you into your own intrapersonal dilemma without telling you what that is. But rather the questions he uses are crafted in a way that in fact you are called into both of those. And then you're encouraged to give voice to that. When you're encouraged to give voice, Assuming the stage has been set and the environment's right and the hospitality and the invitations there and has been accepted, then people begin to explore things perhaps in a depth or a way that they had never explored before. I think that's part of the magic. The magic is that they don't prescribe, but rather they inquire in this sort of caring confrontation and are all tied to this sort of common human nature and that it is common human nature to worry about the 
the greater good. And the way I've used them over time in all the different ways that I have incorporated it into my own work is the belief that all meaning is co-created. Even though we like to think we think things up on our own, we're an amalgamation of our collective history and current interactions. So that all creates meaning for us. We're beings that carry around a tremendous amount of affect and meaning. And I think the magic that's created through these conversations is someone's stopping to pay attention to that. Someone's asking you, what is your meaning in life? What is your intention? If you come to one of these conversations and it happens to be under the auspices of the common good or community, well, what's that mean to you? Which crossroads are you at relative to that meaning for yourself and then for others? And the context setting of where he was confronted with that himself and found great power and aspiration and inspiration. And then he has collectively begun to shape that. And then with the work of Tony Petrella and Warner Burke and Werner Erhard and Peter Kestenbaum, all these people have a philosophical way of teaching an inversion of thinking instead of first doing. They sort of ask you to consider the dynamics that you're involved in, the dynamics of your action. And I think that combination, because he's used so many different influences in the development of his work, really is an integration of what I would call sort of head, heart, and freedom. When you involve the mind and the heart together, but then you give it a platform for how one can pursue their own freedom. Because I think that's what people experience in those conversations. There's a, a sudden burst of freedom, right? You're asked, what is your confrontation? What is your crossroads? And as soon as you give voice to it, there's a little bit of liberation in that, right? And nobody ever asks you about what's the commitment you're withholding or what's the forgiveness you've got given. Those are often left to individuals struggling their own minds and or with their therapists. But suddenly now somebody's making that sort of common dialogue, right? What happens when we withhold our gifts or withhold forgiveness? What's the double bind that creates and how does that inhibit our freedom versus facilitating the freedom? So that's why I say, I think it's kind of you know, head, heart, and freedom combined that, that really gives, and particularly the community book, but really all his writing, it's sort of punch, if you will. This poem is called Transformation by Adam Zagajewski. It's been translated by Claire Cavanaugh. I haven't written a single poem in months. I've lived humbly, reading the paper, pondering the riddle of power and the reasons for obedience. I've watched sunsets, crimson, anxious. I've heard the birds grow quiet and the nights mutinous. I've seen sunflowers dangling their heads at dusk, as if a careless hangman had gone strolling through the gardens. September's sweet dust gathered on the windowsill and lizards hid in the bends of walls. I've taken long walks, craving one thing only, lightning, transformation, you. Now let's return. Yeri shifts to talking about his own work and the influence Peter has had on him. Now, 
that happened in the whole of philosophy, and I think this is where Peter and I match a great deal, that you act on what's important to you. You act on what's local to you. You may have empathy around major issues. You may have empathy for significant happenings in the world and so forth, but you act on what, what's local, what's direct and powerful for you. So for example, if there's a school shooting, the majority of us will feel sad and mad and empathic and want to react and support macro initiatives like gun control or whatever the case may be. But if there's a shooting at your kid's school down the street, you're out of your seat down right, to take action because it's more local to you. And I think that's the power of community just in general. If something can become a community and you're a part of that community, it means you care, you're invested, and so you're likely to take action. If it remains too esoteric, you're probably going to have tremendous empathy and maybe make some contributions, but you're less likely to take it to the point of action. You know, in my own personal life, I grew up with fairly humble beginnings and with a last name that in my very white neighborhood, uh, I grew up in, in an area where people with Latin last names were, were sort of pushed to the side because my last name is, is an unusual last name in Latin, kind of got lumped in and we weren't spoken to, we weren't talked to. So a lot of access to school programs and to college prep and all that kind of stuff, our grouping back in those days was just sort of skipped over, right? We were the poor kids from the wrong side of the track and, you know, nothing good comes from that group. Let's concentrate on the good kids who are here, got families to support them and so forth. So that's a biography of my own, very condensed version. But what that did, because it's local to me, meaning it has meaning to me, as I got to a place in my 20s where I could begin to influence other systems and so forth, I started designing programs that would help school systems rethink their approach to kids who were called at-risk kids. And so Peter's work went a great way in terms of helping to influence my thinking there. How do we create a community within a community at a school, for example? And how do we begin to have that community be challenged with you know, what is your attitude towards this kid who causes problem or this kid who's in trouble with drugs and so forth? And if you just think bad of that kid, then why are you pretending to care and begin to confront them again in a caring sort of compassionate way, but nonetheless with the realities of how they are acting within their community, which is to disenfranchise some people and favor other people and so forth. So that started what became for me kind of a lifelong thing of trying to bring equity in education in ways that I could while still having my professional career and so forth. Long story short, we can accelerate now to the mid-2000s. I had retired from business and I had moved into academia as sort of an encore career and had the opportunity to begin working with some folks to develop an alternative early learning system. That system started on the back of a napkin with just some ideas and using. We had a very powerful board who was supporting us and who was helping us to access money. So we began to launch this alternative early learning system on the basis that one-year preschool actually has this huge multiplier effect, kids increasing graduation from high school. But in that process, again, kind of drawing on these principles from Peter and the common good and the collective 
and also John Knight's work and Walter Brueggemann's work and Ken Gergen and others who have influenced me and uh, Margaret Wheatley and folks. I facilitated a, a group, a very small group in the beginning that launched this initiative as a nonprofit that eventually grew over five years to having raised $750 million and having implemented over 350 preschools serving over 50,000 children. That system's still alive today, going well. I ran it directly for almost six years. When people ask me about how were you guys able to do it, I said, well, you know, we, we didn't concentrate on the rules and procedures. We concentrated on our intention. And then we tried to figure out who had a stake here, who was interested, who's a part of this community that might be motivated. And those folks were invited in. And yes, we brought in expertise and we brought in legal stuff as necessary. And we brought in the right managerial science and so forth. But the passion and the heart and the core of the design of what we created really came out of this sort of place of how do we create a community that values children so much that it's willing to do what it takes, regardless of the background of a child, to make sure they have an equal starting point in education. Peter's work was very powerful in that. We actually took a couple of Peter's books and taught it to all our employees as they came on board so that we could kind of imbue them with the same sort of philosophy and possibility thinking, you know, what are you the possibility of? If you're going to be a part of this organization, uh, we're here to make a difference. We're here to create this new opportunity so that tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of kids eventually would get a leg up as opposed to being marginalized. And, and what are you the possibility of in that process? And then, you know, we would start from there with folks. So very powerful, had a tremendous impact, uh, that operation still going. And uh, again, just furthered my convictions. And now I teach that to, to graduate students, right? Not just in the practice of becoming OD practitioners and working in private enterprise, but also for those who are interested in social innovation and making a difference on a social basis. You hear a lot these days about the concept of dialogical OD or dialogical and what that means is to create meaning from being in dialogue together, do sense making. And that is, I think, what Peter's, again, community building book does, is he has crafted a series of questions that even if you play with the questions a little bit, if you stay true to the principles of those questions, generates a dialogue that is generative in and of itself, meaning it creates meaning for people. And then you, you leverage that meaning into action. I also think this is where people can benefit from Peter's partnership with Walter Brueggemann. Walter talks a lot about the recapitulation of the Exodus conflict, right, uh, out of the Old Testament. You know, you wander out into the desert. As soon as you get anxious, you want to go back to Pharaoh for your security and your assurances and so forth. In doing social innovation, you, you need to recognize you're going to have those days, right? You're going to have those times when it's going to feel like a desert and no one's supporting you and that can kill you and stop your project. I see far too many times it does for people. But you can also recognize 
in community because you have the support of others, right? Uh, you can give voice to those fears, right? And while you may be having a tough day or a tough period, others might be able to rise to the occasion, provide the necessary support to keep going. So the collective or common good need to be more than just phrases. They need to be embodied themselves. They become a mindset, a way of looking at the world. And then you put them into action by putting that mindset or that philosophy into action. And then it begins to view all the different strategies or techniques or tactics that you take. How is this helping us? How is this moving us towards our mission, keeping us on track, providing support so that you don't get caught in that anxiety and security and fear that could begin to make you say, ah, you know, I'm going to leave this to someone else to do. When you actually begin to launch the work, you need to understand that doing social innovation work is a leap of faith. If it were easy to do, if the problem were relatively clear as to a solution and so forth, it would have been done already. But it's a complex world, right? These social dilemmas don't emerge or challenges don't emerge in a cause and effect world. There are multiple variables that come together that lead to circumstances of people being without homes or economic disparity or the need for food and so forth. If you treat them as a problem, then that's exactly how you approach it is you've got a lot of problems to solve. And when we try to solve problems, we try to look for root causes. And then if we can just get to that root cause, right, then the problem will be fixed. And that's a nice sort of economic model. It's not reality. Most social dilemmas were created as a result of a variety of issues, politics, conditions, circumstances, etc. And so consequently, to intervene, I think you need to have something that is actionable, something that you can conceptualize doing. But then you need to you know, start with that simple back of a napkin. What's the crossroads we're at today? Not how do we solve this for forever, but what's the crossroads we're at today? Well, we need to figure out when's our next meeting and who we're going to invite. Okay, let's do that. Then you have those meetings and what's our crossroads today? So these conversations are not one and done conversations. They become part of a dialogue that's ongoing. What are we angry about today? What have we said yes to that we don't mean anymore, that we think was a bad decision and now we need course correct? So that's what I mean by generative. These dialogues aren't just a sequence of I have five or six dialogues and I'm done. I begin to, again, kind of imbue this into the culture so that it becomes a way of our approach in the situation. Well, we've got X, Y, or Z dilemma. Okay, what's the possibility that comes out? Well, we're feeling hopeless. Okay, well, what's the possibility that could come out of feeling hopeless? Well, we're worn out. Well, what's the possibility that comes out of out of feeling worn out? Well, we're tired, Gary. Okay, take a nap. And then when you wake up, then let's talk about, you know, what the possibilities are. So if you are facilitating this convening, if you agree to that mantle of leadership or being a co-leader and these kinds of initiatives, You really, again, I think what these conversations and building community, I mean, the book community, and I think it's aptly named, is to realize you're not pursuing just an initiative. 
you're actually creating community. Thanks for listening. You can find more about Gary, the brief biography he wrote about Peter, and the six conversations in the show notes. Also, our next abundant community conversation will be with Jen Hoos Rothberg on November 15th. You can find the registration link in the show notes as well. This episode has been hosted by me, Rabbi Miriam Turlenchamp, and been produced by the amazing Joey Taylor, and music is from Jeff Gorman.